Good morning. This has been special already, has it not? Ooh, a lot of energy. I can't match that, right? This is with all the voices and the instruments. I uh, just love the giftedness. And think about this. God surrounds himself with music always. Always. And so when you think about it, it's like, okay, if God surrounds himself with music always, what powerful instrument that it can be in our own lives if we surround ourselves with music that brings glory to him. And so it's a special thing to be able to do so on this day. And uh, my name is Tony. If you are new here, I'm pastor at LAFC and we welcome you here. Uh, We are going to be celebrating and we have been celebrating the coming of the Christ child. Jesus is the son of God. And he is the one who redeems us. He is the only one who can do that. And on the night that he was born, if you understand from the King James translation, because again, that's what I grew up with, hearing that story read every Christmas Eve, Luke 2, when this point happens where it says, fear not, angel speaking, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That term, behold, is meant to be a moment where you stop, not just look past and get a glance, but you stop, you study, you look into, so that you understand more fully. I shared last week as we began to look at this term a little bit, that as it's used in the text, that it's like when I had this experience of, of going to Longwood Gardens and seeing the orchid room for the first time and, and realizing, wow, a lot of color. But it wasn't until I stopped and realized just how intricate each orchid was. It's so uniquely designed, each one, and there's so much detail to it that I began to appreciate the flower. In the same way, Christmas season has a way to it that there's tradition that we can appreciate. There's things we get to do. My guess is most of you have finished your shopping. The rest of you catch up. But it's very easy that in the process of fulfilling the traditions that we do the glance of what the season's actually about. And it's meant to be beheld looked upon more intently, more deeply, not just simply. The angels, as we talked about last week, only knew Jesus as their creator and only beheld him in the fullness of his glory and power. You know, the scriptures talk about when the moment comes when Christ returns, his full glory and power will be evident and it's going to transform you because you will have never beheld anything quite like his presence. But that's all the angels ever knew since they were created too, like us. For all their existence, all they ever knew was Jesus and his full glorious and powerful presence. So for them... To see him become a baby, part of the created, was something to behold. And they wanted to make sure that we didn't miss it. Because as they said in Luke 2.10, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. So behold this. This is good news for mankind. 
And so today, we do not want to take a glancing look at this moment. There is something to study and lean into here because it is important, essential to our lives to appreciate what was accomplished by Jesus becoming man. So I'm going to ask you now to turn your Bibles to Philippians 2. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. Uh, they're coming down. Just put your hand up. We also use an app uh, that is called the Uversion app. If you go tap onto that app and you go to the events tab, you touch on that, you'll see LEFC, touch LEFC, and then you'll get an opportunity to see the scriptures we'll be using this morning. So last week, we read verses 5 to 8 of Philippians chapter 2. And, and there's some things I need to readdress before we go into the rest of the text that is found in Philippians 2. In verses 5 to 8, which we read last week, let's just read that again, and we'll recover some territory. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what makes the birth of the Christ child, Jesus, so special? Well, it says in verse, says in verse five, uh, 6, it says, He in very nature, form, essence, full being is God. And then he becomes fully man. He doesn't divorce himself from being God, but he does take on then the identity of being fully man in the full essence of who man is, that very nature and form of being man. So to have this moment where no other verse like this has happened where God, who is eternal and infinite, then becomes part of humanity and doesn't lose that whole divine side of himself. It, in fact, it was still fully there. But as it says in verse 6, he did not use then his divinity for his own advantage. He didn't use it for his own uh, glory, he used it for the benefit of others and to bring glory to his Father, Father God. But then, you see, as he says in this, that, that for him, in verse 7 it says, but he made himself nothing by being on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So ultimately, he made himself nothing. He made himself humble in the greatest humble, active thing he could do, he became man. He became man. And that combined with his death, which it says in verse 8, that he humbled himself even further. And this would actually be more like humiliation to the point of actually accepting a death that was not due him. What is saying in this text, the Apostle Paul is telling us that the two greatest acts of humility in the history of mankind was Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. To be born as the creator, being born a part of the created, does not 
make sense. Why would God ever do that to himself? It, take, it took incredible humility to do so. But then, once he's here in this human skin, this body, the full essence of a human being, walking this earth, doing that which the first Adam did not do, which is live perfectly, so there, therefore death was never his penalty, but it was ours. And therefore he chose to die so that he could pay for the penalty of our sins. That too was a great act of humility. It's there that I want us to behold today. I don't want us to just gaze by this and say, yeah, that was humble. Or that was an amazing thing he did. No, I want us to fully appreciate the humility that, that Jesus espouses and models for us that is also found in the heart of God. This depth of humility is a challenge to us. So let's go into verses 1 to 4 and, and study this a little bit more fully. So verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Because in your relationships with one another, we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So ultimately, that first verse says this. If you've received any benefit from Jesus Christ, does that include you? Does that include me? Yes. If you've received any benefit from him, then we are called to live like him. We are called to live like him. As it says in that verse 1, it says, If you've had any encouragement from being united with Christ, then and any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like him, like-minded, thinking like him, behaving like him, having a spirit like him. Which gets qualified then in the next verse. What does like-mindedness look like? Well, it says, having the same love. Having the same spirit. Having, again, not only the same spirit and love, but having the same kind of mindset as Jesus Christ. So if we're benefiting from any work of Jesus then we need to love like he does. We need to have the same spirit by how we interact with one another. And we need to have the same way of thinking. Could you imagine if the world that is celebrating Christmas right now took upon themselves this idea of living with the same kind of love, the same kind of spirit, and the same kind of thinking that Jesus did? Would things not be different? Could you imagine, could you imagine the church having the same kind of love, the same kind of spirit, and the same kind of thinking of Jesus Christ? 
I think the church, if it truly took serious the benefits we've received from Jesus and realize that those benefits are not something just to receive for ourselves, but it gives us an opportunity to then reflect it, to be a mirror towards other people, that they can see the benefits we've received from Jesus so they can receive the benefits themselves. After all, Paul says, in our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Could you imagine a church that loves the way Jesus loved? That had the same spirit and type of spirit that Jesus had. And the way we treated one another. And then thought like Jesus the way he thought. And when you start thinking about what was his attitudes and what were his thoughts and what was his spirit. Look at verses 3 and 4. Because this is where I'm saying the church falls short often of this. Look at it. It says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, just like his humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We talk about what it means to look and become a disciple like Jesus Christ here at LEFC. Now, if we're called as, again, the great commission that Jesus says to his disciples before he goes back to heaven, as he says, I want you to go into all the world, making disciples of people, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're to become disciples who make disciples. And when you say that, okay, a disciple is somebody that is like the person they're discipled under. So we're mirrored images. We're reflecting him. And we've studied the life of Christ here, and we've decided we can boil it down to four general categories of behaviors that reflect Jesus. And they are loving God with our whole being, loving people more than we would love ourselves, living truth that we're not caught into the social foray of how to live, but rather a life designed by God. So we live truth, and we proclaim Jesus. Jesus is always about proclaiming his kingdom, and we get to proclaim him as we further that kingdom. But if I was to look at this text in verses 3 to 4, I would call this the three pillars of his attitude. So the, the things he did was to love God, love people, live truth, proclaim his kingdom, and proclaim himself. But his spirit by how he did it, is reflected under these three pillars that you see here. Again, let's read it. It says, he didn't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So the first one is, what was his motives? What was it that drove him? And I would say that what you're seeing in this text, that we're supposed to reflect that Jesus did, is that it's an attitude of, it's not about you. It's not about you. I mean, think about what things you are doing in your life that orders all the things that you have filled your time with. What's the end game? More often than not, the end game is, well, okay, I want to be able to live a life that is full, that I, I can provide for my family, it can, you know, that we can enjoy things on this life, and if you want to just add the, Amer the American cliche, it's to be happy. 
When you see this text, we're supposed to have the same mindset, like-mindedness as Christ. And the attitude of Christ was his ambitions, his motives, had nothing to do with about himself. It was about other. So it's not about you. You're motivated by what can benefit other people, which then requires the second pillar. When you see in here, it says, not looking, I mean, it says, rather in humility, to value others above yourself. Okay, so it's to value others beyond yourself. When you start living with the mindset of Christ, it's like, okay, if I am about me, then it's about furthering my careers and my things and what can benefit me. But if you're valuing others, then you're going to have a different paradigm by how you see success. Success is going to look very different. So it's not about you, and it's about valuing others beyond yourself. And the third pillar that I see in this about his attitude is that he looked to the interests of others, not his own. So our actions are determined by what's going to benefit others. How can I benefit you? By how I lead my life. That's something I have to remind myself in what I even do. Everything I do needs to be filtered through the attitude of Christ. How can I benefit other? And I fail as often as other people fail at that. I mean this whole idea of humility is an ongoing challenge, is it not? If this is the pillar, so Jesus lived by this. His attitude was, it's not about me. It's about coming and redeeming all of us. And it's a, in order to do that, you have to value them above yourself. He had to do that in order for even being willing to take on the death penalty. For even being willing to become human. And... The actions by what he did in this life required him to do it in such a way that it's not for his personal benefit, but what would benefit other people. So let, let's kind of test this for a moment. Did Jesus truly live up to the standard of these pillars? So the first pillar being it's not about you. Did Jesus think like that? It's not about you. Well, think about this. The way he was born. Who of us if we could write the story that it is about you and we wanted to make it a grand story, would write it that, okay, we want to make him something. When in, in fact he's saying he wanted to become nothing for the sake of others. So to become something, we would write the story differently. Let's find a really nice hospital. A hospital where we could create a choir that could announce his coming. And we would make sure the TV stations are there so it could be broadcast all over the world. And then we would make sure that we'd set up his house in Pennsylvania. And then we'd make sure that he was in the best county of Pennsylvania, in the best region of that county, in northern Lancaster County. And you can decide whether it's Ephrata, Lidditz, or Manheim. Or Township will allow them to be included too. Our story would make him something, and it would look nothing like the story that God actually wrote. Do you realize God had a decision how to write the story? And he wrote it 
simply. He wrote it simply. He wrote it in such a way where you cannot accuse Jesus, Son of God, fully God, fully man, going on a glory tour. It was simple from the beginning. He was born in a simple town of Bethlehem. He was born in a simple place, a little barn. His first bed was a a place where cattle fed. His household that he was born into was of the lower class, just a carpenter. From a, grew up in a town that would be a small town, that it's not of any great influence in Nazareth. And then, once it was declared at his baptism by God himself, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Once now people are starting to realize there's something uniquely different about Jesus. Where did Jesus reside? He didn't. He didn't have his own home. He didn't have his own family that he raised with. In fact, he went wherever there was a need. And the places he went. The disciples were even like, after he'd had an amazing experience in Capernaum. And things were going incredible well in that northern part of the Galilee region. They're like, we should stay a while. This is going really well. And Jesus' response was, I have other towns I've got to go to. Because there are more people that need to hear about what I have to share. Everything was driven that it wasn't about him. It was about other. And then how did he use this power and authority? How did he use his divinity? It says it, you know, in this text that we just read, he didn't use it for his own advantage. No other moment for me captures the heart of Christ on this power and authority question, then the moment on the night he was betrayed, while he's in that upper room, and it says that realizing that all power and authority have been given to him. So the Father God has just said, okay, I'm stepping back. Jesus, this is your moment. Decide with it how you will. So what did Jesus do after being given that kind of a moment? It says he wanted to show the fullest extent of his love to his disciples. And what did he do to show his love? He got up from the table, took off his coat of identity, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash their feet. That's what he did with the highest power and authority given to him. He chose the lesser seat. You see, the seat of honor at the table means that all of everybody's attention is focused in on you. But instead, he got up from that seat of honor and he worked one by one to elevate everybody in the room by lowering himself. So he did value others beyond himself. And lastly, his actions were definitively determined by what benefits others. His birth and his death both reflect that the entire narrative of his life was for your and my benefit, not for himself. Why would God write the story this way? But that he didn't want us to miss the fact that he is humble in heart and gentle in spirit, and he wants us to experience the life that he had actually designed that we had missed out on because of Adam and Eve's failure. 
humility is at the core of this. Think about the great deceiver when sin actually entered the world. What did he appeal to, to Eve, to cause that sin to happen? He said, oh, God doesn't want you to eat of this tree because he knows that if you do, you'll become like him. And knowing everything that he knows. That appealed to pride, right? That appealed to pride is like, well, that's not right. We should know what he knows. Because they were looking to their own interests. They were valuing themselves above God. They were not other-minded. And God is the opposite of that. Jesus lived out these pillars. Did God? Now, hear me in this. This is where it gets tricky. I have to guard my words and how I explain all this. At LAFC, we believe the word of God teaches that God is a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God and three persons. They are individually persons, but they're all one together. So if Jesus was humble in spirit and modeled an other-mindedness, valuing others beyond ourselves, and even in this aspect of coming to every action is determined by what will benefit others, we can kind of compartmentalize because we're human beings. We have a hard time conceptualizing a triune God, God and three persons. So we tend to look at Jesus and say, okay, I get Jesus and his humility, But that's not how I understand the Father God. The Father God being humble like that. Well, let's test that for a moment. Is God himself, the Father God, truly a humble God? Some of you might be questioning, well, that doesn't line up with what I read in Scripture because in the Old Testament, it says multiple times that he's a jealous God. And anybody that I know that is jealous is not a humble person. Well, let's think about when that statement gets used. It's when people begin to create a God of their own that they give themselves to. Because all of us worship. You might have come in this room and say, I'm not really a believer. I'm kind of an agnostic or atheist or or other. But you worship something. You worship something. We all do. We're created to worship. And the natural tendency is that when you choose not to worship God is that you'll create things of your own to worship. And they're created things. If you're God and you created this humanity to be a reflection of you made in your image and that you love them as intensely as he loves them and they begin to worship things that you created Wouldn't that arouse you if you knew that that was to their detriment and their harm? Yes, you would get jealous for it because you're like, you're giving yourself to something that is not going to fulfill you. It's going to destroy you. So of course he would say, I want your worship because I am the only God, the only God that exists. You might even say, well, How can you call God a humble God when he says there is only one path to him? That exclusive path. Is that reflective of humility? When Jesus says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God except through me. Well, as we looked at last week, sin caused us to come under the penalty of death. And the only way sin can be ever forgiven is by blood. And the only kind of blood that could ever forgive sin, past, present, and future, is of a perfect lamb. But the only way that that can do both inwardly and outwardly a full covering of sins, past, present, and future, is by a perfect lamb who is human. Therefore, mean that only one person could possibly accomplish what you and I have celebrated today, and that's that the Son of God come, becoming human, living perfectly, and dying without having ever committed a single sin, creates a path where we can live in the full presence of God without being destroyed. Because our sins have been covered by the blood of the perfect Lamb. So is that not humility? Because God could have chosen to eradicate humanity and start it over once Adam and Eve failed. But no, he decided because he loved us and he had created us, he wanted to see us come into relationship with him and be able to experience eternity with him forever. So he, therefore he created the only path that was even possible to make that happen, and that was sending his son Jesus. Does that pass the test of humility? Well, to whose benefit? Ours. Who was evaluating us? Was it about him? It was about us. God is a humble God. So then we come back to Philippians chapter 2. It says, if you've received any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any comfort and common sharing of his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if any joy from him, then be complete in him by becoming like-minded. Same love, same spirit, same mind. How in the world does that even happen? What is the journey towards becoming like Jesus in that level of humility? Because quite frankly, none of us are going to ever write the book, Humility and How I Achieved It. It's just not going to happen. So there is a journey, though, that I believe can happen where we can become more like him in his humility. And I look to Isaiah 66 too to find my direction for this. And it's going to be on your screen. And it's the last part of the verse where it says this. And it's God speaking, by the way. It says, these are the ones I will look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So God's speaking to the prophet Isaiah and he's saying, listen, there is a type of person I am looking for. There's a type of person I'm looking for on this earth that I'm going to show my great favor. In fact, multiple translations are try to figure out how to write that statement as best that they can. So here's some of the ways the various translations say it. God speaking, to this man I will look. To this one I will look graciously. To the one I will look favorably upon as this kind of person. This is the one to whom I will look. I will show special favor, special favor to this type of person. I will bless those who are. I am interested in and concerned about who are. 
Or as one of my favorite paraphrases, the one I will call my friend is who is humble in heart, contrite in spirit, and reverent in submission to the word of God. The journey of becoming like-minded requires that kind of progression. And it has to begin at the heart. The heart is, I need to begin to think not about me, but about you. And I need to value more, you more than I value myself. And in regards to that, I need to be about the interests of others, not the interest of myself. And that's the journey of the heart, and it begins there. Secondly, when you have that kind of humility in your heart, you'll begin to realize, you know what? I'm not all that. I'm not perfect. I still need a lot of work done in my life. We're still going to need to be confronted for areas of sin. And I just jokingly mentioned this to some people as I was praying with them this morning, that, you know, Lord... We're still finding ourselves committing the same sins that were very prevalent in our hearts when we were 10 years old. The things I did that when I was 10 years old have an adult form to them now that I still can find myself guilty of. And so a humble heart will acknowledge that like we still need to be working on these things. That contrite spirit says, then I need to be remorseful of those things. A contrite spirit says, I, I do not like my sin. I don't want that sin as part of my life. A humble heart's willing to admit it. And then a remorseful part is to say, I don't want it. But the third part of, of Isaiah 66 too, which again, I think is so crucial to the journey of the heart is, yes, acknowledge that I'm in need of work and then being remorseful for the things that I've done that is, that is an affront to God. But the third part about being trembling at the word of God is to remind ourselves that you and I are not the final authority of truth. God is. And the world will try to define life in so many different ways, it doesn't make sense. So we have to have something that becomes the authority in our lives. And so the word of God becomes the light into our soul to help us be reminded for what we need to be remorseful over and then to construct us to living like the true humble God that he is. And then we begin to think like him, live like him, and model him before others. Because my ambition no longer is me, it's other. It says in scripture that as we become more and more like Christ, then we'll find that we love others more than we do ourselves. That we'll find that in our spirit towards others, that we're more respectful and gentle and humble towards them as we value them more than ourselves. And then we'll end up, end up having the same mindset of Jesus where it's like, you know what? It's not about my benefit. It's about other. So in this morning, as we conclude this service, let's behold him for the wonder and the amazement it is of his birth. Let's gaze upon him and let's be captivated by him so that we can know him more and think like him and therefore live for him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, there is no way that I could be found like you without your word. There is no way I would have any sense of knowing what needs to be confronted in my life without your word. 
And without your word, I wouldn't even know the mind of Christ. I wouldn't even know how you behaved. I wouldn't even know your spirit. You truly humbled yourself. And I understand that and know that from your word. But Lord, we need the work of your spirit to make us realize we still need your construction in our lives. We need your spirit to confront us that we still have sin we need to be remorseful over so we can truly repent of those things. And yes, Lord, yes, Lord, we need to continue to lean into your word so we can still shine the light, not only in us, but through us. So we praise you, we glorify you, because truly, God, you are humble enough to consider us. And Jesus, you love the Father so much that you want to bring him glory, and you loved us, that you were part of helping create, that you became one of us so that you could redeem us. And you did so humbly. So we praise you, we give you glory and honor, and receive our songs and our words and our actions and our gifts to one another as a gift to you. For it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. 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 Praise the Lord.
<laughs> Again, no. <laughs> oh, so special. And we get to praise him, don't we? What an amazing story that we get to be the bearers of. You might be going into family gatherings that, where there are people that don't know who Jesus is. They just love the season. They like the, the aspect of giving. And they don't realize it's a mirrored reflection of the greatest gift ever given in Jesus himself. So let yourself be the mirrored reflection of that by valuing them more than you value yourself. That everything you do during the season is for their benefit, not your own. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what God wants to do in the lives of all those he's called to redeem. And so just in the same way that when Jesus says, you know, he, he made himself nothing, he humbled himself to become part of us, and he then humiliated himself to even die a sinner's death. He did all that with great humility for the sake of us and benefiting us. And it was God who lifted him up. He didn't do that whole thing of glorifying himself in the same way. That we're not all that, but yet when we humble ourselves before him and we bend the knee before him, it says he becomes the lifter of our head. And that we can then look upon him face to face and he treats us as his own child, his firstborn child, with great delight, saying, I get to spend eternity with you. So too, Jesus, again, didn't glorify himself, but God gave him glory. And the end of the text that we read today says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the most highest of place, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, not to his glory, but to the glory of the Father. Jesus let it be about God and about you and I. Let's give him glory because his name is worthy. His name is elevated, not ours. And I'm glad you came here today because I hope that this just connected you a little bit more, beholding the wonder of the story, gazing upon it and letting it teach you more now that we can reflect that better towards others. If you'd like to talk to someone about this journey or just pray with someone, we'll have somebody in the encounter room that'd be glad to do so with you. For the rest of us that may not need to have that prayer right now with someone, take a moment to just thank God. Behold him a little bit longer. Don't let the season fly by where it's just a passing over of Luke 2, but a true gazing upon it and just being in wonder of it all. Amen? God bless. Have a Merry Christmas, and I hope I'll see many of you here on Christmas Eve.